0: Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years, maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Racism in many forms has played an important and unfortunate role in Louisiana history. But from the time of the early civil rights movement through today, there have been strong, brave leaders who have stepped up to right the wrongs of the past. On this week's show, we'll introduce you to pioneers past and present who have made a difference. We begin with the newest crusader, Toure Folks of Turning Tables. Toure is working tirelessly to bring diversity to the hospitality industry by training black bartenders to succeed and move up through management, something that's shockingly missing in the industry. Then. We'll hear from food writer Todd Price about the dearth of black chefs in New Orleans today. Something that's changed radically since Creole Feast. Rudy Lombard's seminal 70s book pulled the curtain back on who was really responsible for classic Creole cuisine as we know it today. Finally we sit down with Vance Vaucresson, whose father Sonny fought racism and won in the 1960s at his Bourbon Street Vaucrasan Creole Cafe. Today, Vance is preparing to open a new iteration of Vaucresson's right in New Orleans' 7th Ward, where it all started three generations ago. We're honoring the black hands that stirred the pot and who are stirring up some exciting cocktails today on this week's Louisiana Eats.
1: Hello, my name is Terry Folks, and I'm the executive director of Turning Tables.
0: In 2018... A tourism and hospitality report from the data center surveyed over 1,000 hotel and restaurant bartenders in New Orleans. In a city that's 60% black, the survey revealed that white bartenders account for nearly 3 quarters of the field, while black bartenders represent less than a fifth of it. Current data from the Labor Department gives us national numbers that are even more striking, White people make up 85% of bartenders in the U.S., while black people constitute less than 5%. In light of this stark inequity, in 2019, industry veteran Torre Folks founded Turning Tables. This nonprofit aims to diversify New Orleans' bar scene by providing black and brown professionals with everything they need to succeed. Toure joined us in the studio to tell us about the program, which was developed largely by his own experience coming up in the service industry in New
1: York. So I'm a 15-plus um, year hospitality professional. I was a server for a long time, mostly because um, I watched uh, my white counterparts be given opportunities um, and growth through Um, management positions being offered management positions or we're about to open up this new restaurant why why doesn't this person come with me and um, you know generally speaking I was always um, left in the same position um, in this in the first restaurant at least where even though I was the top server and you know created like a large regular base I was not seen for what I brought to the table and I think inadvertently my body was like you know F this like why don't I move on to something else?
0: The normal way into um the bar industry is what
1: the normal way um there's one of two ways you know it's either um that you know someone you know, or you work in a restaurant and someone gives you an opportunity so um that's how I became a bartender was that I moved on to another space where um I was supported in management, I was allowed to work every position. I was encouraged to be myself and to find growth in uh, the restaurant space, you know, part of a restaurant group that owned six restaurants and constantly asked if I wanted to move up in the social ladder within their structure, like, you know, if I wanted to be a manager, what I wanted to do, what were my goals, what I, like, you know, did I have ambitions outside of the restaurant industry?
0: You're right. Other than, you know, your your basic racism – where do you believe the causation of this glass ceiling could be? Where what's Where is this glass ceiling coming from? Is it just racism or are there other elements at play?
1: So I think a lot of people don't realize um, the impact of white supremacy culture, how it kind of goes through all of the things that they do. So you may not be intentionally racist, um, but may have racist practices in terms of how you hire without even thinking about it. Um, There's a lot of great business owners that I've been in equity um, trainings with who, when they were thinking about opening up their space, um, logically you're going to think of your friends. And if you're a white person or a white male, you're going to hire white males. You're going to hire people that you um, are surrounded by. Um, your thought process does not automatically go to, like, who can I give an opportunity to unless it goes to who can I give an opportunity to. So I think more people are thinking in terms of um, their very singular universe when they hire and when they um, create opportunities for people as opposed to um, going back to what we've been talking about this whole time, which is, like, um, do you have the time to train someone and invest in someone? How, how are people given the tools to succeed Within certain systems, um, and who is willing to to like check and balance those things? Um, I think that's part of the the problem with the glass ceiling.
0: Tere, I love New Orleans. You know, anybody who knows me knows this is my spot. But if you were already running into the racial issues that presented themselves in New York City, did you find things better or worse here?
1: Hmm. I would say that things were definitely a little bit worse here. Um, you think, you think it's a, you know, it's a mostly black and brown city, um, in terms of management opportunities, in terms of opportunities of who gets behind the bar. Um, I think that, uh, maybe it's like 5% black owned business owners of like restaurants in the city. And then, um, you look at who's behind the bar. Um, No, obviously, it being a mostly black-owned city, you're going to see black bartenders. But who do you see when you go into certain establishments?
0: I couldn't imagine that you were going to think things were better once you got here because I'm from here and I know how it is. (laughs) But maybe you just saw an opportunity for change.
1: Without a doubt, I mean, um, New Orleans has a way of letting you know if it wants you to be here. I would say Um, there was definitely some challenges along the way. Um, but what I saw through um, volunteering and the, the community here, the community here is like no other, um, I, will, I will say that. And so um, embracing my community, becoming a part of the community, gave me a little bit more intentionality and um, drive to want to do what I started to do, which was um, I started, like, building partnerships and doing, like, um, a little bit of research into, you know, how could I change um, – what i saw within the hospitality systems here um and it was informed a lot by my own experience even though you know new york and new orleans what we're talking about this is a problem nationally i will say that um new orleans you know it's mostly a hospitality culture so the events um bars restaurants uh the framework for this was almost perfect to start um what Turning Tables has, um, intends to do, which is to change the nature of hospitality and spaces by creating more opportunities for black and brown community. And uh, we were assisted by um, Tales of the Cocktail to get it off the ground. And then once we hit the ground running, um, there was a thirst for it. People were like, you know, this eye-opening moment. Like, why, why haven't we why thought haven't of doing this, thought before? Of this before? Why haven't we thought of this before?
0: So Tales of the Cocktail gave you a platform initially prior to... T- Uh, 2019
1: um they gave us the initial funding so ah after we got the initial funding i had to learn essentially from going from being a bartender to running an organization um and what makes new orleans so special is that i think it was a lot easier here to um be embraced by the cocktail community and the bar community because um definitely cannot do this alone and what i found was a super supportive community that like wanted this change themselves
0: So how many do you take at a time?
1: So the first two years, um, the first year was like a pilot year, so it was like about seven students. Um, The second year, because of COVID, I think it was a little bit harder to recruit, but it was about the same amount. And then this year, which I really consider to be like our second year in theory, um, our numbers have doubled, so we took on 12 students. Um, And so our goal is to go twice a year down the line.
0: So walk me through the program.
1: So. It's twelve weeks. Um, and so the 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 length of the program is with the intention of that they're going to the industry together. So um, you know they have the system of support, and it starts from the beginning. Initially, we try to give them a base in um, cocktail history, but also um, entering the industry in like a, a way that um, is um, they have. Industry lifestyle maintenance, so um, maintaining their own mental health and having healthy practices going into the industry as well is as important as any kind of cocktail they're going to make.
0: And what does it cost them?
1: It's absolutely free.
0: (laughs) That's always a magic word. What's the future of turning tables? What are you hoping is going to happen next?
1: I think in the future, I've mentioned scale. So, like, obviously, you know, Hospitality is something that I love. It's given me a lot of different opportunities. And so if we can um, bring those opportunities to people that are underrepresented and um, have never been given those resources, um, obviously, and not just here, I would love to like bring our model into other places. What I'm seeing is you know, um, more and more chefs are reaching out to us. More and more people are reaching out to us. Um, and I think our impact is being realized, you know, Chris Hanna, who is local legend in the cocktail world here, um, came to graduation. He was the mentor of one of the students in our program. Um, and I would have never in a million years thought that when I started this program that I would be able to get a Chris Hanna or, um,
0: Neil Budenheim
1: yeah, um, yeah, or like get someone into one of those, you know, I remember approaching Neil for Cure, um, early doors and now to have someone working in one of his spaces you know all of those things me lead me to believe that like the sky's the limit in terms of our impact.
0: Well Turei I am so grateful that you are putting this new pair of spectacles on everybody's nose and making them look a little closer because that looks long overdue so thank you so much for your amazing work and Please keep us posted on your progress and what comes next.
1: Oh, for sure. 100%. Thank you again for having me.
0: Torrey Folks, founder and executive director of the New Orleans nonprofit Turning Tables. Coming up next, we'll hear from food writer Todd Price as he examines the dearth of black chefs in New Orleans restaurants today. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now inviting you to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew with their new box subscription program. Shipped quarterly to your door with up to 10 surprise ingredients inside, it's like having a Mardi Gras parade through your kitchen all year long. To learn how to join the Camellia Brand crew, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Support also comes from Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. Dark racial inequities persist in New Orleans' restaurant industry. But it's important to remember that the city's Creole culinary heritage is built on the legacy of black cooks who ran the kitchens of our finest restaurants and who struggled to be seen. In the introduction to his 1978 cookbook, Creole Feast, civil rights leader Rudy Lombard described these men and women as working, I quote, in almost complete anonymity and frequently in a hostile environment. Published at a time when the cultural and economic status of chefs of all stripes was rising in America, Lombard's book helped establish the fundamental role black chefs played in forging Creole cuisine. But an era was passing, and quickly. Soon, the number of executive black chefs in New Orleans was falling. In 1986, less than a decade after Creole Feast came out, the Associated Press wrote an article lamenting how few black chefs remained in the Big Easy. Last year, food writer Todd Price reported on this topic and wrote a piece exploring why black chefs in New Orleans are hard to find today. You may know Todd's byline from his decade-long stint with the New Orleans Times-Picayune, or his current beat covering the Deep South for USA Today Network's The American South, where I first came across his article.
2: Well, you know, I think any of us who follow food in New Orleans recognize how few Black executive chefs there are in this city. Um, And it's, Where the story kind of came from, you know, I've written about food for a long time. I mean, I started back in 2004 at Gambit. And again and again, when I talk to white chefs and I interview them, it's so frequent that their history begins. My parents helped me with the first restaurant. Uh, They mortgaged their house and took out a second loan and helped me buy the restaurant. And it just struck me over the years that when we talk about some of the very concrete ways black people have been discriminated against in this country, a lot of it is their inability to create generational wealth because they were redlined from buying houses. And, you know, and so it started with that and thinking, you know, we we talk a lot about how there aren't that many black chefs. And then I thought about the nineties when we started seeing chef owners and chefs became entrepreneurs. And it occurred to me, these two things are completely related that, chefs were able to raise enough money to open restaurants, but fewer black chefs were. Uh, and then I guess the next thing they hit upon was this fabulous book, Creole Feast, which was written by Rudy Lombard, who was a civil rights activist, uh, and Nathaniel Burton, who was a very well-known black chef at the time. But the fact that they could write a book in 1978 highlighting 15 black chefs, and today I don't think you could do that. And as I said in the story, if they all got together, it wouldn't even be a large party at a restaurant.
0: Well, it's very bizarre to me somehow that that 1977 action by the U.S. Department of Labor almost correlates then the next year. Here comes Rudy with his
2: book. And that action was before the Labor Department classified chefs as domestic workers. And then afterwards, they were classified as management and professionals. And You know, I I don't, obviously, they weren't directly related, but I think part of what, you know, Rudy Lombard sensed was that chefs were becoming more prominent. I think 1978 was just that period when chefs started to be taken seriously, when before the restaurant owners were the ones that people knew. It was in the air that they were gaining respectability, and I think it was very important to him that Black chefs be part of that and that they be included because he understood the growing respectability. I mean, you know, one thing a lot of these chefs in Creole Feast and a lot of the chefs at the time, they, they started as dishwashers. This was a career where you could literally just walk in the door knowing nothing and work your way up. Um, and it was working class um, by and large, but it was a pretty good career given the options. Um, and so, you know, I, I think part of the reason we see fewer Black chefs today is there are more options. I mean, there there are good things about, you know, there's a wider range of careers open to Black people today. And, and that's part of it. So I don't think it's all negative. I don't think we should bemoan the fact that there are greater opportunities. But it, it's not just that. There's other issues.
0: One of the things you discovered is that not only are there a few of them, but that basically we've got like an extinction problem because they're passing away at mm-hmm. a very high rate too. Tell me about that uh, that investigation, that road you went on, who you searched for, and what you found.
2: Part of it is, you know, a lot of these chefs are in their 70s uh, who took that path of starting as dishwashers. Uh, they've retired. Some have passed away. Um, you know, the, the one example of the one who's still working and who I interviewed for this story is Milton Prudence. Um, and Milton, he's not from New Orleans. He's from uh, back east, Rhode Island, I believe. But um, in 1968, he came through New Orleans. Uh, he'd just gotten out of the Marines, needed a little money to get back home, thought he was going to be a school teacher, uh, But he had an uncle that worked at Galatois and got him a job as a porter. Um, and he stayed at Galatoire's for a very long time. And he was, in fact, the first person Galatoire's publicly named as a chef and made an announcement that he's our chef. Um, and then, you know, as we know, he went on to Tommy's uh, and today he's at Annunciation. You know, Milton really took me back to the days when, as you know, as he said, everything was done by hand. Everything was passed down verbally, um, you know, and it really made you understand how these restaurants are really living institutions
0: well you also spoke with one of my favorite people alfred singleton yes he's uh (laughs) that's that's a very very amazing man and uh i'm i'm very happy that he's at cafe Sabisa, one of the owners and that they're rolling along
2: Yeah. He's not only the executive chef, but he's a partner. That's a big thing. And you know, what's interesting about his story, he's a local guy, you know, he, uh, grew up partially in the ninth ward where his parents had a lower ninth ward where his parents, uh, family had like a po' boy shop. Um, but he didn't know any chefs growing up. I asked him and he said, you know, I didn't know anybody who worked in the quarter, but uh, when he was in high school, he wanted to make some money and he got a job at Baco's, the, uh, Ralph Brennan Italian restaurant that many of us will remember. And, uh, and he got really interested. And, you know, I think part of it was Eric Vinay, who's now at Muriel's and is one of the few black executive chefs in the city was the chef at Baco at the time. And, you know, Alfred told me having someone who looked like him in charge really made him see that it was possible for him to be in charge. Um, It made a difference that that first job where he just, Needed some money as a high school kid. Uh, seeing that role model really, I think, set him off in his entire career. And he's had a great career. I mean, he's been executive chef at Dickie Brennan Steakhouse. And just a lot of places. I mean, really impressive career. Um, and, and just a great guy. And he's not that old either. He's in his 40s. I mean, he's done a lot. So,
0: he's an amazing guy.
2: He really is.
0: So, yes, we are talking about these black chefs at these old institutions These fine dining, white tablecloth establishments. But I'll tell you what. I think that there is a whole lot going on in a more casual venue, a more approachable way. I I mean, my goodness, you know, um, Pee Wee's Crab Cakes. Yes. That fella's a phenomenon. He's about, Mm -hmm. he's multiplying and... You know, people can't get enough of his crab cakes.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, There's a vegan soul food restaurant on Mm -hmm. Canal Street owned by a black woman. And so I think it's very interesting that although we're bemoaning
3: this Mm -hmm. loss
0: of these black executive chefs as we once knew, I think there's something going on.
2: Well, and when I look around... I mean, you look at not just food businesses, but you look at Baldwin and Company, the bookstore and cafe. And yesterday I talked to a gentleman who is on his way to reviving the Dewdrop Inn and and making it again. You know, that was part of the Chitlin Circuit. It was just, you know, one of the most, uh, it was part of the Green Book motels. And it was really important place in the musical history of New Orleans. And I think you're seeing around the city, a, a real revival in some new black owned businesses, which is amazing. So I do think you're right. And it's amazing. Some of it seemed to have happened during this pandemic, um, which is not a great time to be starting businesses <laughs> for sure, but it's been really heartening to see some of this movement.
0: Todd, what about, you know, you right now for USA Today. Yes. What about the national scene? Do you actually really see black executive chefs other than perhaps someone like Marcus Samuelson, who's just a superstar chef? Is this something that is happening across the country? Because I'm not so sure about that.
2: No, I mean, this is not something that's limited to New Orleans. Um, And I think this story could have been written about the country. Now, there are some great examples. I mean, you look at uh, Mashama Bailey in Savannah with the gray um, and other examples throughout the country. But yeah, I mean, this is the story that was written about New Orleans because that was the history that drew me in, but as an issue, this could have been a national story um, for sure. And and it's, you know, it's a question of opportunities. um, You know, as I said, I mean, as more chefs own restaurants, you have to have the money to own restaurants. um, And that's an issue given the lack of generational wealth. Um, and, and that's nationwide, that's not just New Orleans. But, you know, New Orleans, we have this incredible precious cuisine that was created here and that was created by Black chefs. Um, so in some ways, you know, it's, it's so important that their hands and their voices and their taste buds and their memories remain part of the way we eat in the city and remain celebrated and prominent.
0: Price, food writer for the American South by the USA Today Network, and former dining writer for the New Orleans Times-Picayune. You can find a link to his article on our website at poppytooker.com. In 1978, Rudy Lombard wrote the seminal work on Creole cooking, his book, Creole Feast. Between the pages of Creole Feast, the world finally met the black men and women who shaped New Orleans' renowned Creole food. Not only did Rudy write the first cookbook about American chefs, but with the spirit of a civil rights activist, he elevated the hand that stirred the pot, awarding them the professional status so richly deserved and so long overdue. Sadly, Rudy Lombard passed away in 2014. Here he is in 2012, telling the story of his book, Creole Feast. Rudy, in 1978, you published your seminal work on Creole cooking, Creole Feast. How did you come to write that book?
4: Well, a couple of years before that, I was involved in an urban planning study called uh, Claiborne Avenue Design Team, and we were coming up with a study to revitalize the culture of downtown New Orleans along Claiborne Avenue. And I made a statement. I said, everything that was unique about New Orleans could be traced to the black presence in this city, whether it was music, whether it was carnival, whether it was architecture, and I said, and food. So I could name names of African Americans who were prominent in all these areas of the history and culture of New Orleans. But when I said food, I realized I couldn't name names. I just knew that there were blacks cooking in all of the great restaurants in New Orleans. And so I started to ask people about, well, who cooks over here and who cooks over there? And there's a great musician by the name of Freddie Coleman, and he was a drummer here for years and years and years. And he knew uh, Warren LaRuth. So we went to see Warren, and I, I said, who's the greatest chef in New Orleans? And he didn't hesitate. He, did, he said, hands down, Nathaniel Burton.
0: So who was Nathaniel Burton?
4: Nathaniel Burton was a black man who started out in New Orleans as a dishwasher. He, you know, he washed dishes in a lot of these restaurants. And when the chef uh, would get sick or something, he taught himself how to cook. And by the time I met him, he had been, you know, an executive chef at Commander's Palace and I met him, he was the executive chef at Bruce Hart's. Mm-hmm. You see, he trained at least 56 other chefs. Wow. Okay, so he said, he's the godfather
0: of all of the chefs, blacks all white. It, it was and really like that old apprentice system back there. Exactly.
4: So I called him, and I told him what I wanted to do, and he said, let's do it. Okay, and so he started telling me all of the chefs he had trained. We 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 settled on fifteen. We could have put a lot more.
0: It's so amazing. Um. How nowadays, you know, everybody knows who the chef is in the restaurant. That's the thing that. But in those days, right. they, the, the chef was almost invisible, wasn't he?
4: Well, I my argument is that the Creole Feast is the first cookbook in America about chefs. Before that time, the country raved about. French chefs. Mm -hmm. There was no books, no books printed at that time about American
0: chefs. Let's talk about the photographs now. In Creole Feast, the photographs of the chefs were very innovative at that time. Mm. Each one is such a personal portrait of that chef. How did that come to be in the book?
4: Well, that's attributable I, I, to the talent and the the vision, the perception of Wayne Miller, who was in charge of design of the book, and Frank Lotzmiller, who was a photographer at the time, Frank and his wife. So the aesthetic of that book was, was an interaction between myself and them, and they had some really ingenious ideas. And as you notice, there's no pictures of food in that book no
0: food photography at all right
4: but not that frank wasn't gifted at that because he was but what we wanted to do is focus on the people so we were bringing together the image of those black people with those fancy names and fancy gourmet restaurants, so that there'd be no question about who was cooking the food and as i can tell you for instance that that picture on the original cover says everything you need to know about Mr. Burton he's an authoritative strong you know introspective
0: person and with a little tinge of arrogance about it uh, the, the the photograph of Austin Leslie with right. those big Austin, meaty yeah. forearms and those those ham hocks of hands that he's got
4: you would never meet more kind generous loving people than the men and women in that book and austin is the epitome of that him and leah chase and they loved each other too so they supported each other Willa amazed i went to will and she was you know she was reticent to give up any recipes you know she was she had her own remarkableness she would tell a writer i don't want you to put my name in the papers about my address or my phone number. I, remember. I just want the, to <laughs> feed my regulars. Whoever whoever heard of a city where a, a <laughs> chef in a major restaurant didn't want any advertising? <laughs> what I am thankful for to the great almighty God was that we did this at a time when we captured the aesthetics of culinary arts in New Orleans, many of which have now disappeared.
0: Rudy, Where are the young black Creole chefs of the 21st century?
4: I think they're coming up at a time when, uh, you know, they want to cook like the people who can make money, you know. Um, And there are a lot of black chefs around the country, but they cook in the the kind of nouveau style. Random House asked me if I wanted to reprise the Creole feast. I'm not interested in, you know, necessarily... uh, Doing a second or third volume. I would rather, my ego is not invested in the repetition of more and more kinds of Creole feasts. I'm quite happy to turn it over to a younger generation, and I thank God for the opportunity to put on the record the genius and the skills of the people who are mentioned in that book. I missed a few, and I regret that. But uh, nothing is perfect. I did the best I could.
0: Well, you did a great, and I, and great I job. For rain, so. <laughs> the late Rudy Lombard, civil rights activist, cookbook author, and keeper of the Creole Cooking flame. was Tom Bullock? And what was he stirring up in the early part of the 20th century? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Hoppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and an abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events itinerary suggestions and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Who was Tom Bullock? And what was he stirring up in the early part of the 20th century? Just like Rudy Lombard illustrated in Creole Feast with Cooks, black bartenders were very prevalent in pre-Prohibition times, particularly in the South. Born in Louisville in the early 1870s, he was the son of an ex-Union soldier and a slave. He initially worked as a bellboy, but went on to become bartender at Louisville's Pendennis Club. After spending time working for the railroad, he settled in St. Louis, where his bartending skills became renowned at the exclusive country club there. Bullock served patrons like George Herbert Walker, the grandfather and great-grandfather of the 41st and 43rd U.S. presidents and stirred up a classic mint julep for Teddy Roosevelt. In 1917, just three years before the start of Prohibition, Bullock became the first black man to pen a cocktail book, The Ideal Bartender, where he chronicled 150 drinks recipes, many of which are unknown today. Luckily, almost 100 years later in 2015, Cocktail Kingdom republished Bullock's manual, bringing his story and his amazing cocktails to life for today's aspiring bartenders. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Vaucresson is the president and third generation owner of Vaucresson Sausage Company. The business has its roots in New Orleans as early as 1899 when Vance's grandfather worked as a butcher in the 7th Ward. Vance's father opened the first black-owned Creole restaurant in the French Quarter and served Vaux Hot Sausage Poor Boys at the very first New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival in 1970. Today, Vaux Sausage is the only original food vendor remaining at Jazz Fest, where they serve Sausage Poor Boys to an ardent customer base from across the country. When we last caught up with Vance, we discussed the eagerly awaited return of Vokrasans to the Seventh Ward and the many barriers his family's business has faced due to discrimination. You know, your father was such a trailblazer when it comes to civil rights. He didn't take no for an answer. My goodness, um, there's the wonderful story of Vaux Creole Cafe uh, becoming the first African-American business since Reconstruction
3: on Bourbon Street. When was that? That was um, uh, like around 64, 65. Um, let me Let me make sure that your listeners understand. My father, even though he was a black man in New Orleans with the history of the many shades of colors of people that exist here. My dad was on the very, very fair side. He had light blue eyes. He was very fair. And throughout his life, he was mistaken for a white man. He never went pas blanc, which is a term that meant he was passing for white and, and not acknowledging his true self as a man of color. But what he found was that he was able to make inroads with various people throughout the city and do business. And then once it came to be that they realized that he was a black man, which a lot of people didn't believe just because of the way he looked. They saw the businessman that he was and the character that he had within and they continued to do business. Uh, it wasn't until much later, once the word got out, and people really knew that it was, as it was told, a, a black man was going to have a, a partial ownership in a business on Bourbon Street. Then that's when a lot of the Negativity came about, but it didn't last long. We we opened and we were open for probably about nine or 10 years. And then after that, my dad had this, he had already attempted to build a small meat processing plant uh, that was going to be state inspected in the early 70s. But unfortunately, uh, they did not allow him to do that once they found out that he was a person of color trying to do it. As a black man, in the state at the time and the Department of Agriculture, or the meat industry, unfortunately, has not always been receptive. So like a 10-year span went by. At the time when we got our plant in the early 80s, I remember my dad telling me he went to uh, different uh, meetings, uh, organizational meetings. And, you know, a lot of these country boys saw my dad and at first sight, they didn't know. You know, they just mm-hmm. thought he was white. But uh, once they found out that, you know, this was a black plant, Um, we definitely were told on many occasions that they were gonna put us out of business. Um, We had uh, strong arm tactics placed against us. We had people that wouldn't do business with us. You know, we were fortunate enough just to keep, I watched my dad just keep fighting. He just never, you know, quit was not a part of his vocabulary. He just kept on and the fact that we survived the way we did and, and then we're able to flourish You know, the only thing that took us out was Katrina, but I just kept that spirit my dad had and kept fighting.
0: Later this spring, the Vaux Sausage Company will make its return to New Orleans' 7th Ward. But the site will include much more. Tipping his hat to his family's history in the city, the new Vaux Creole Cafe and Deli will include a market, deli, and restaurant, all in a one-stop shop.
3: What I'm about to do with this cafe and deli, I said, okay, I'm gonna take two of our histories, which our restaurant on Bourbon Street and our sausage company and having a meat market in the seventh ward for generations. And I'm gonna merge the two. And that particular concept is actually relevant today because we've seen so many models of that pop up. Um, Donald Link, I give him a lot of credit for what he did with Cochon Butcher. Uh, the outfit over there on Bienville with piece of meat. And then you've seen all of these small butcher shops and different people who are going back where this cycle is coming back. It's interesting, where we had a meat market in our neighborhood for years. My grandfather, my dad, my uncles. And then it faded away once like Winn-Dixie and Schweigman had these big meat markets. And it really killed a lot of those uh, individual markets. But it's like everything is cyclical. You know, now everything's coming back and and it seems like people are looking for these smaller, more intimate outfits that are, are niche oriented. And I saw where this neighborhood that I grew up in on the seventh ward, where it is actually going through a, a certain phase of gentrification. And if you, as you know, the model of gentrification is one that when it sets in, it can wipe out a, a people and a generations of their, their, their being in that neighborhood. It can wipe out businesses that have flourished in the neighborhood for years for more homogenous name brand chains. And one of the things that I didn't want was to have that really happen in this beautiful, rich, cultural neighborhood. I felt that if I could come back and be a stakeholder on that corner, it could be one representation and hopefully encourage others to come back. And maybe we can coexist with the obvious gentrification that's going to happen, but also benefit from that. Model, which is also a cyclical reference of how that neighborhood once was, where you had the Italians and the Irish living next to the, the, the Creoles of color, all these different people that lived in a neighborhood where everything's cyclical. We're coming back to that. And I really believe that. So as we try to look at these younger generations who have access to so much information and see how a lot of the things that we've been taught have been just, you know, founded in histories of ignorance and, and separatism that they realize that in order for us to move forward, we've got to move past a lot of those things which we have been proven to be just incorrectly taught or just uh, false narratives so that it could keep certain neighborhoods, groups of people divided and, and, and for being able to be on a level playing field. All we want for this neighborhood in the seventh room is to be a, a wonderful mix of whoever wants to live there.
0: Vocresson of Vocresson Sausage Company and the highly anticipated Vocresson's Creole Cafe and Deli. Vance reports that the new Cafe and Deli will open later this spring, and he really looks forward to greeting his Jazz Fest fans both at the booth and at Vocra'son's in the 7th Ward. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily, four centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, Visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Palmerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, and producer Blake Longline, And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.